Welcome to A Language I Love Is, a podcast all about languages, linguistics, and love. I'm your host, Danny, and today's episode is an audio journey into the linguistic, cultural, and historical cosmos of Persian. This is a language documented since antiquity, and one that has had a huge influence across the Middle East, Central Asia, and beyond. Dr. Alexander Jabari is here to guide us through the Persian language and share just a little of his great love for it. I am just delighted to have someone joining me all the way from Minnesota in the United States of America. Joining me to talk about a language that he loves today is Dr. Alexander Jabari. Dr. Jabari is an assistant professor in the Department of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Minnesota. And he's joining me all the way from the Twin Cities to talk about one language that he knows very well and I dare say has a great fondness for. So, Alexander, how are you doing today? What's life like in Minnesota at the moment? I'm great. I'm happy to be talking with you today. Uh, it's just turning to fall, so I'm, I'm dreading the, the coldness to come, but uh, otherwise great. Right. No, that makes sense. It's pretty hardcore cold that you have over there, so I can understand your trepidation. So you have listened to the podcast so far, but for new listeners of A Language I Love Is, I'll just recap the format very quickly. This is essentially a chance for you and I to have an entertaining and, I hope, educational conversation about one language, getting to know that language and also getting to know you, Alexander. The way this works is that after building up a little bit of a language biography, I will ask you three questions questions that allow us to get to know your relationship with this language, what you like about this language, and what we as listeners should know about. So let's start with the main question itself. Alexander, what is a language that you love? Uh, a language I love is Persian. Excellent. Persian. Okay. A new language for the podcast, I'm very pleased to say. So I'm very keen to learn about Persian. I think we should dive straight into the deep end, first of all, and unpack this term Persian. Persian is a term that we can use correctly and incorrectly, but it's an umbrella term that masks a lot of variation. I think that if people have had some dealings with Persian, if they're familiar with it, they may have heard terms like Farsi as opposed to Persian. They may have heard Dari, for example. Could you unpack the relationship between these different language names? Are they synonyms? How do we use these terms correctly? Yeah, great question. First of all, a point, as you, as you mentioned, that people are sometimes confused about is, you know, should we call this language in English, Persian, or Farsi, or something else? Uh, and generally, and historically, Persian has been the name of the language in English, uh, and other terms have been used in the language itself, the same as you might say German in English, but say Deutsch when you're speaking German. Farsi has, has been historically... Uh, the most used term for this language in the language, but not the only one. So Dari is also a historic name of the language and historically didn't refer to a different variety. So Farsi and Dari could be used interchangeably. Farsi being an adjective of Fars, a region, Dari being the language of the court, an adjective referring to the court. So the court language. So these are not historically different varieties of the language, but different names for the same thing. And there are other names that have been used as well. Today, the linguistic landscape is a little bit more complicated because 
uh, daddy has come to be used to refer to the variety of Persian spoken in Afghanistan and in order to kind of give a national name to their form of the language. Uh, it's sometimes referred to as daddy, although many Afghans also will call their language Farsi in, in the language. And of course, uh, in Tajikistan, where a variety of Persian is, is also spoken, there's also a, a national name and a national identity for their form of the language, uh, which is called Tajik. Uh, but these are all uh, varieties of, of the same language. It's as if we talked about speaking American and, uh, and speaking British rather than just speaking English. As you say, the linguistic landscape and therefore the terminology have changed over time, and there's there's no reason why they shouldn't. With regards to the present day, these terms, how accurately do they reflect divisions and fault lines within the umbrella term of Persian? If you were to talk about the Persian of Afghanistan, i.e. Dari, and talk about the Persian of Iran, the modern-day country of Iran, which we generally call Farsi... Do they actually respond to something in the language? Is there a division that these terms are actually helpful for? Yes and no, uh, in that these national divisions like borders are both something that are arbitrary, artificial, you know, that we impose on a, a kind of messier reality, but also take on a life of their own then. Um, you can't just cross a border without a passport by saying, oh, these borders are are fictitious. They They correspond to... Uh, real differences in the language, the sort of prestige dialects of each country are different and are based on different geographies. So in, in Iran, the variety, we can say, of uh, of Persian spoken in Tehran is taken as the standard, which is quite different from the Persian of, say, Kabul. But as you get close to the borders, you find a great deal of continuity, um, as you might expect with other languages as well. So in the part of northeast Iran, Khorasan, that's close to the border with Afghanistan, uh, the city of Mashhad, for example, the Persian spoken there is much closer to, much more similar to what's spoken on the other side of the border. Uh, and that's true with divisions uh, as we get into um, Tajikistan as well. So I'm, I'm giving a, an ambiguous answer, yes and, and, and no, in that there are continuities across the borders, uh, but there are real differences uh, in these different uh, varieties of, of Persian, and especially in the sort of national standards as they're standardized in the three countries where Persian is uh, an official language. That makes sense to me. At the end of the day, yes, the borders don't correspond to some sort of older linguistic situation. But nonetheless, the borders, they, they shape the reality because the borders shape people's lives and therefore they're shaping languages too. Um, it's not as if language is some sort of, you know, gas that permeates borders. No, it exists through people, with people. Moving aside from the issues across countries, is there a lot of variety within Persian, within, say, for example, the Persian of Iran? Is there a lot of variety? Would you say that there are areas of the modern day country where you find more Persian and in somewhere else they might call it something different. I'm thinking in terms of dialects, in terms of geographical variation within Iran today. Absolutely. With it, within Iran and within other places, other countries and, and places where Persian is spoken, there's a great deal of variety and variation, both within the language itself. So within Iran, 
There are many different, uh, whatever term we want to use, accents, dialects, varieties uh, of the language across different regions and, and cities. Within one city, you will still have variation that can be about socioeconomic class and you know different ways that that people speak uh, that the same variety of, of a language and and Persian is kind of we can say on a spectrum as it starts to bleed out into other varieties that start to be identified as separate languages so there are there are closely related languages we might say spoken uh, within Iran to Persian things like uh, Lori for example sometimes, uh, there's uh, a bit of a debate. I think more more often it's, it's considered an independent language now, but there was uh, a bit of debate around things like this. Where do you draw the line exactly? And of course, uh, in, in all three of these countries, and I should add, there's significant speakers of Persian outside of these three countries as well. But uh, within any of these, Persian is not the only language that is spoken. It's about, give or take, 50% of the population of Iran speaks Persian as a first language. The vast majority of the other 50% knows it as a second language and uses it because it's the language of dealing with the state. It's the language of interethnic communication and literacy and, and so on. Um, but so it's part of a linguistic landscape that includes many other languages as well. And that's true also in Afghanistan, also in Tajikistan. Just a callback to the episode of the podcast with Samapriya Basu, who used the phrase persosphere, which I really liked as well. And this is a seriously prestigious and influential language within that part of the world. And, you know, Persian is first, but also a second language for many people too. So you've given us so far a great idea of the geographical context for this language, specifically in terms of the nation states where we might find a lot of Persian speakers today. Could you, though, go a little bit back in time and give us a sense of the genealogy of Persian, its history too? Where does Persian come from? And uh, what might be some of its uh, linguistic cousins and sisters and relatives? Absolutely. So Persian is Indo-European, first of all. That's obvious in some ways when you encounter the language. There's a number of basic words that are cognate with, uh, with languages that your listeners might be familiar with, obviously English and others. So things like father, pedar, mother, madar, daughter, dochter, uh, these things, you know, kind of stand out immediately as recognizable cognates. And there's a great many of those. Tooth, dandon, might think of dentist and dental and so on. Uh, more specifically than that, uh, it belongs to the Iranic branch of Indo-European which includes languages like Kurdish, Baluchi, and Pashto. Um, so it's genealogically related to them. And then, of course, what complicates things is that, as you mentioned, it was historically a lingua franca for a very wide swath of, of geography. So it has impacted and left influence on many other languages, which may or may not be genealogically related to it. And it has also been impacted by its encounter with other languages. And above all, by a, a genealogically unrelated language, which is Arabic, a Semitic language, which had historically uh, a huge impact on Persian and really gave this form of Persian, new Persian, uh, its identity as a language. 
Persian is a language that we have a lot of historical data for, right? Um, unlike many, perhaps most languages of the world, we've got a solid record of texts that go back into history. So I'm thinking then that we have stages of Persian. We have Old Persian, Middle Persian, Modern Persian. Can you see the Arabic influence coming in? If you were to look at, say, Old Persian, I'm not sure how you define that chronologically, but prior to the influence of Islam, can you see the difference taking place? Can you see the changes over time? Sure. There's a great deal of difference between Old Persian, the stage of the language that um, I think is associated. Now, I'm not an expert uh, in the pre-Islamic history of of the language before about the 7th century. So hopefully I'll get this right. But I think you know, especially associated with about 700 BC to 330 BC, the, um, you know, corresponding with the Achaemenid Empire. There's a great deal of, of difference in a number of ways between that stage of the language and Middle Persian that's associated with the court of the Sasanians around 225 to 650. And the differences between those two stages don't have to do with Arabic, which really only comes onto the scene in terms of interacting with Persian in the period that we would call the middle period, middle middle Persian, in that what, what kind of draws the line between middle Persian and new Persian, what we usually refer to now when we just say Persian, we mean new Persian, uh, is the encounter with Islam, with the Arab Islamic conquest of Iran. And that's where you would really see that. If you looked at a transcription of late Middle Persian and looked at a transcription of something from early New Persian, you would both see a great deal of continuity. You might even identify them as the same language, not just uh, the same language over that long period of development, but, but really identical. But also, if you looked at a literary text in early New Persian, you would start to immediately pick out lots of vocabulary that you would not have found in Middle Persian. And that's the Arabic element in terms of borrowing from Arabic. But it's also the case that because it's not only about borrowing vocabulary, but coming to write, for example, in a new script, in the Arabic script or a modified form of the Arabic script, that as you change writing systems, you capture in writing now developments that had already been taking place organically in Middle Persian in the late part of that stage of the language that may not have been reflected in writing then, but were how people were probably speaking. And now that is being captured in in writing. So that's how there's a great deal of both kind of continuity across those, and also a, a clear kind of point of distinction. That that's a really interesting point you raise about the writing system and how Persian is is written down. So you suggest therefore that there there is a time when Persian is written down and it's before the use of the Arabic alphabet. So I'm just wondering then, firstly, what was that earlier writing system for Persian? How was it different to what's used today? And after the adoption of the Arabic alphabet, has the Arabic alphabet risen to total dominance of of Persian? Or are there other systems that are still used for writing down this language? There's a number of different scripts that these different forms, earlier forms of, of Persian were written in. You're asking about Middle Persian, which was not all written in one script already. You have different forms of scripts that are used, for example, a, a, a derived form of the Aramaic script that's used uh, to write 
Middle Persian, which is uh, very complex, very difficult. Today, almost all writing in Iran and Afghanistan is done in the Arabic script, although people sometimes now on cell phones and computers may use the Latin script um, because of technological difficulties sometimes, especially in earlier years with uh, Arabic type. Less of a problem these days, I guess. But in Tajikistan, for about a century now, it's written in Cyrillic, a form of the Russian script. And historically, this form of new Persian was not only written in the Arabic script, although the vast majority of writing was was done in the Arabic script. But we also have some of the earliest new Persian uh, material that we have is in the Hebrew script, sometimes called Judeo-Persian. We have material in what's called uh, Garshuni. It's Syriac script when used for writing different languages, not just Persian, but we have uh, a little bit of material, I believe, in the Syriac script uh, and, and other scripts as well. But the vast majority has been in the Arabic script for new Persian. That seems logical to me. I mean, it's a number of scripts to reflect the, the long history of written Persian and, of course, its geographical variation today. I'm curious, though, I'd like to just expand on something. You mentioned that Persian today is primarily written in the modified Arabic script. That's interesting that you should say it's modified, so it's not completely the same. What are the differences between the way that Arabic is written and the way that Persian is written? Are they very different to the extent that uh, a reader of the alphabets could easily recognize this is actually Persian, even if you don't know the Persian language? They're not terribly different, but there are differences and they're all recognizable visual differences. So there are the the most notable would be that there are four sounds that Persian has that Arabic does not, or at least that classical Arabic um, did not, which are pa like p, ga like g, zha as in television, and ch like a ch. And these come to be reflected in the Arabic script as used by Persian. So that would make it stand out visually from Arabic right away. The other thing I would add there is that one, historically, those modified letters were not always used for writing Persian or not always used consistently. So for example, the script form used to make a G sound is, as you might be able to guess, modified from the letter for K, K, with an extra stroke. But historically, when we look at manuscripts, we don't always see people writing that stroke. And so we know that it was pronounced that way. And the reader just had to kind of know um, how to pronounce the word. But they're not always captured or consistently captured in uh, in writing. And the other point that I wanted to, to mention, you asked, okay, if you look at written Persian, would you be able to notice right away there's something different here from, from Arabic that would cue you in that it's that it's Persian? And, and so you would have these extra letters, but because Persian then was a, a vehicle for literacy for many other peoples who borrowed this form of the Arabic script from Persian, Urdu, for example, uh, inherited those extra letters, added some of, of their own. So that that is to say, if you see something, uh, a letter that Arabic doesn't have, you're safe to assume it's probably not Arabic, but it may not necessarily be Persian. It could be another language written in the Perso-Arabic script. And it makes sense, right? I mean, you've mentioned already that Persian is an Indo-European language. 
Arabic is not. It is a Semitic language. They have different histories and therefore they have different sounds. So it shouldn't be too surprising that when Persian takes a script that was developed for a different language in a different language family, it's going to take some adaptation. Plenty of examples spring to mind within the context of Europe. I think English should be one trying to make the Latin alphabet work for English. Jury's still out to what extent English has been successful um, in that regard, but it's that same kind of idea of adaptation. So wonderful. I think that is an excellent introduction to the Persian language, its history, its geography, and its writing system too. So thank you very much. At this juncture of the episode, I would actually like to turn away from talking about Persian and talk about one person who has a very strong history, a relationship with the Persian language, and that is, of course, yourself, Alexander. I would like to hear all about how you came to know the Persian language, what your relationship is to it, and also what is its relevance to you today, especially in your academic life. So my relationship to Persian has always been a little complicated. For for one, I'm, I'm never sure whether to describe myself as a heritage speaker or not, because it's my father's first language. Uh, my father's from Iran, but uh, he didn't speak it to my brother or I growing up. My mother doesn't speak it. And uh, I mean, really, to the extent that I, I had almost no exposure to it, if you said to me, Hello, how are you? Salam, Shaturi, Hubi. I wouldn't have known what that meant. It was not a case of, you know, having some passive understanding, but not having active skills. I really knew nothing. And in a way, in a kind of very roundabout way, I came to Persian from Spanish, which was that I uh, I learned Spanish from from friends uh, growing up in Southern California. And I, I learned it uh, to the extent that I, I got very conversational and very comfortable in it. And that kind of opened the idea for me that, oh, you could you could really learn another language. Um, and it's it's really fun to do so. I got very curious when I was, I think, 18, 19. I got very curious then about Persian. Is that that, you know, that stage when, in teenagehood and young adulthood when questions of identity kind of uh, come to the fore? Rumi, I think most people have, have heard of the famous Persian language poet Rumi. He has, he has a line, Har kasi ku durmand az aslachish. So whoever strays far from their origin, they yearn for the day of reunion with that origin. So if I were to wax uh, a little romantic, maybe that's what what happened. I I became very interested in in learning Persian. I took a class in college. I learned the the script and basic greetings and that kind of thing. And, And I went on from there to bother family members, to spend time with me, to speak the language. And I discovered that I did have some benefit. And this is where maybe I should think of myself as a heritage speaker in that because I think I had an early enough exposure to the sound system of the language that the phonology and the kind of sentence level prosody, the rhythm of the language came very naturally to me and I could could develop a very good accent, good pronunciation in the language. Uh, and I became obsessed with it. I, I it took over my life. I uh, it was all I wanted to to do and and learn. And I ended up going to graduate school to do uh, a PhD in, in Persian literature. Um, I spent time in uh, in Iran and also in other places historically touched by the language in in India and Armenia and elsewhere, um, studying it. And uh, and it's still with me. I'm now um, a, a Persianist. I can say as a as a professor. And I'm, I'm, I'm my own research is on uh, something that uh, that came to really interest me, which was the historic role of, of Persian as a, as a lingua franca. 
And what have been your experiences then uh, when you've been in Persian-speaking countries? What's it like, the language today? Is it a case like so many languages that come to my mind, European languages, where there's a kind of written standard you might learn in a classroom, whereas what you actually find on, say, the streets of Tehran is very different? Uh, what's your experience been actually being among a large body of Persian speakers? Yes, there's a, there's a great difference between spoken Persian and written Persian. And that was uh, one of the challenges as I was learning the language was to, to master both because the written form of the language is very, very conservative in that it is rooted in the early literature of kind of early New Persian, the 9th and 10th centuries, and still reflects a great deal of aspects of that stage of the language and, and even earlier than that in some ways. Whereas the spoken language has continued to evolve over time as, as languages do, which is, which is something that's really great about the language because the ease of access for me or for any Persian speaker to read something from the ninth century is, I would say, very comparable to an English speaker reading Shakespeare, which is much later in time. Um, because the written language is so conservative. And so similarly, it doesn't mean you have instant access to these earlier texts. You still have some differences and difficulties you have to learn to deal with, but it's it's a, a pretty easy challenge to overcome in accessing these earlier texts. And there's a way in which, because the written language is so conservative, I think that kind of constrains the development of the spoken language, especially in, in modern times, but also historically, in that it, it places some constraints over how how far the, the spoken language can stray from the written. Returning now to the Persian language itself, in all of its great colour and variety, the second question from me is, what is something that you love about Persian? This really could be anything. I'm afraid, I know this is difficult for linguists and philologists, I'm going to have to hold you to one thing, at least for this episode. Um, what is something that you just love about Persian? Wax lyrical. Well, I love Persian's universality in that it was historically, and in some ways still is, a world language, that it doesn't belong to one people. So I don't love Persian because I'm of Iranian background. Uh, I feel that Persian belongs to everyone. And I love the great historical richness and depth that the language has because of that status as a, as a world language, because of that history as a, as a lingua franca that um, that I can find, for example, I love finding Persian loan words in just about every language I, I look at because it was used uh, as as the cliche used to go from the Balkans to China. And there's recent research um, suggesting perhaps even further in, in Siberia, um, we can go as far south as, as southern India, um, that it was not a language used by just one people, not a language uh, of just one religion, of just one polity. This is is tied also to what we talked about it being a its written form being very conservative, which gives it this great time depth in addition to its geographic depth that you can access so much of the history of Eurasia through this language. Uh, and of course, you know, English is not exempt from that. There's so many English words of Persian origin, some that entered English through its encounters with other languages, 
for example, the languages of North India due to the, the British colonial presence there. And so you get things like khaki from khaki in, in Persian. That's the, the color of khak, of the earth, dirt, soil. One that I really love is uh, um, seersucker, a seersucker suit, another kind of fabric word from shir o shekar, milk and sugar, um, referring to the kind of different textures. Huh, I like that. It's, yeah, no, fair enough. I've certainly, in my experiences you know, as, as an etymologist, I've come across loads of words uh, from Persian. As you say, they've been transmitted through northern India because uh, you mentioned Urdu earlier. It's not only gaining its script from Persian, right? It's also gaining a lot of vocabulary as well. You mentioned China, and China, that says to me, connections through, say, trade and movement and perhaps migrations as well. I'm thinking specifically of the Silk Road. In that broad swathe of territory in uh, Central and Southern Asia, could Persian function in, say, medieval and early modern times as a kind of lingua franca? If you were a merchant and you needed to get from A to B, would Persian be the language you'd need to know? Absolutely. And so many of the great travelers along those routes historically knew Persian, needed to learn Persian in order to do business and, and trade across um, such a great geography. Uh, and that's why you find, you know, it's not only the words from the kind of high register of language that are related to bureaucracy and literature um, that get loaned into other languages, but the words of, as as you say, of of everyday life, of things like vegetables and fruits, and um, you know, items and commodities to be traded, uh, are very often uh, borrowed, you know, in and out of of Persian and and the other languages of Eurasia. Alas, we must move on now to the third and final question that is part of the format of this show, uh, which is, what is something that you want the listeners, the people listening at home, to know about when it comes to the Persian language? What's a kind of parting point that you would like to impress upon people as they go into their daily lives now, I think, knowing a lot more about this impressive global language? I'd love for people to know that they can access this global language uh, very easily, that it's it's pretty easy, for example, for English speakers to learn. For one, there's no grammatical gender whatsoever, so you don't have to memorize the, uh, the genders of various nouns. Uh, you don't have to conjugate verbs differently according to gender, as some languages do. Uh, in fact, there are no gendered pronouns whatsoever, no he or she, just u. Uh, an interesting point there, I think, you know, some, sometimes we have a, an overly deterministic idea of how uh, the relationship between language and, and society. So the fact that Persian has no grammatical gender doesn't mean that Iran or Afghanistan are uh, feminist paradises, as, uh, as, as anyone who's paid attention uh, in recent years will, will be aware. But in any case, Persian has no case basically has no no case. The verb morphology is not especially complicated. The phonology is not that unfamiliar. There's maybe a couple of consonants that are outside of what English speakers would be familiar with. And what all of this means, the grammar is not especially complicated. It means that you can get up and running in the language very quickly. And I know this not just from my own experience, but because I taught Persian at university for many years to non-native and non-heritage speakers. Uh, and so the amount of time from beginning to study and, and jumping into reading a newspaper 
can be very quick. I, I should be fair and say there are difficult aspects of the language like any other. Some of the result of, of I think, not having some of these tricky things like case that help specify meaning in a sentence means that a lot of meaning is communicated idiomatically, which leads to some ambiguity and some polysemy in the, in the language that can be tough. I'll give you an example. Sarzadan, uh, a verb, a compound verb with uh, a noun, sar, meaning head, and zadan, a, a common kind of uh, helping verb to, to hit or strike. So to hit or strike head. You will never guess that this means to visit. It's not a, a transparent idiom. And Persian no. is full of, of things like this. So that that does give you know some um some complexity, some some difficulty to learning. But overall, I feel it's very easy. And I, I hope more people will get interested in learning Persian so they can access that great richness of history and literature that's bound up with the language. This is a new perspective on the Persian language for me, that it is a window onto a cosmos of culture and history and, and everything that you've probably mentioned, but also it's a, it's a large window. It's a window by which many people, you know, can access the language. It's, it's an accessible way in. I'm wondering also then if Persian may be a way to get to other languages. So say, for example, Arabic. Arabic, again, another global language, a language that is very helpful for many people to learn. Both the writing system of Arabic and then the language that that is hiding behind that writing system can be very difficult for, say, a native English speaker. But maybe Persian could be your way into that world. You've got the script with a friendly, friendlier grammar, and also, as you say, a whole load of Arabic loan words as well. Would you say that perhaps Persian could be a linguistically sound way into other languages as well? Absolutely. It, it was for me a stepping stone as I as I started to learn Arabic, uh, as I later learned Urdu, these were both languages that I felt I had an enormous leg up in and, and took to very easily because just upon beginning to learn either of these, I already knew not only the script, but so many thousands of words that gave me an entry point into the language. And so I think absolutely Persian can be a stepping stone into a great number of, uh, of other languages as well. Fantastic. Well, for the language learners out there, jump from English to Arabic via Persian. I mean, it's linguist approved as a plan. So that is an excellent note to end on. I think it's really optimistic, a real great recruitment drive for the Persian language. So I think you've really sold it to us there. The final question for me is that if people would like to know more about Persian, where would you recommend in terms of resources that they start? And um, if people want to perhaps get in touch and find out more about what you do, uh, where can they find you? If they want to uh, head hit you online, where can they look you up? Great. I love that. Um, well, for, for starting with Persian, I always recommend uh, Wheeler Thaxton's Introduction to Persian. It's a it's a great textbook and well suited to self-study as well. Uh, and to to find me or head hit me, I, I have a website. It's my last name, uh, Jabari, J-A-B-B-A-R-I.org. Uh, and you can find me on, on Twitter as well. Just search my full name and I'm sure I'll come up. Well, I've been totally enthused by the Persian language. I now want to go and study it. I mean, you succeeded in that regard. Not great for my ongoing PhD studies, but there you go. Um, <laughs> so honestly, the final thing then for me to say is just thank you very much. Thank you so much for giving up your time, for joining me today on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the experience as much as I have. So thank you very much. And till the next time, perhaps. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Mm -hmm. 
one key aspect of Persian mentioned by Alexander is that it is an Indo-European language. This means that it shares a prehistoric origin with languages like Latin and Greek, and English too. Through that common origin and the later historical influence of Persian, sometimes the same word appears twice in English, in one way inherited directly, the other way via Persian. For instance, Latin pis and ancient Greek pus mean and are related to English foot. Persian sides with Latin and Greek in that its word for foot or leg is pa, starting with a p. This word appears in the compound word for leg garments or trousers, pajame. By way of Hindi-Urdu, this is recognisably the etymological origin of pyjamas. That's it for another episode of A Language I Love Is. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give the show a rating and share it to spread the linguistic love. Also, if you have any feedback or requests for future episodes, feel free to get in touch. Thanks must go first to my guest Alexander, but also to you, dear listener, for listening. Till the next time then, bye-bye.